Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston or Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. What we have here this evening is uh, four writers, uh, unique and different voices, united by one common bond. Um, their apparent inability to pronounce the word aluminium correctly. Uh, it's aluminium. Um, <coughs> I still can't pronounce it. <laughs> uh, to my right, uh, Gillian Flynn, uh, formerly of Kansas City, Missouri, I believe. Uh, the author of three novels, including Sharp Objects, which won the CWA New Blood Dagger and the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger for Best Thriller in 2007. And she's the author of the recently published Gone Girl. She's also the former chief TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. Um, Chris Moody, were you ever critic for any noted magazine, anything notable like that? Not a thing. No. No. <laughs> okay, uh, to my left, uh, Megan Abbott, the Edgar Award-winning author of seven novels, including last year's hugely acclaimed The End of Everything, which made countless uh, best-of lists at the end of the year, and was a Richard Duty book club choice. Her latest novel, Dare Me, was published in May in the UK, ahead of its US publication later this month, and she has a PhD in English and American literature from NYU. Chris Mooney, do you have a PhD in <laughs> anything? No. No. Of course you don't. No. Um, to my immediate, uh, to my immediate right, uh, Ryan David John. Uh, grew up in Arizona, I believe. Uh, spent time in the army and as a screenwriter, is now the author of four novels, uh, including his debut, Acts of Violence, which won the CWA Creasy Dagger in 2009. Uh, his latest novel is The Last Tomorrow. Um, did you ever serve time in the army or do anything notable like that, Chris Mooney? What, um, I went to an all-male... Catholic high school, does that count? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, so no. Oh my God. And to my left, uh, Chris Moody. Chris Moody was born and raised in Lynn, Massachusetts. Uh, after graduating from the University of New Hampshire, majoring in creative writing, he applied to the college's MA program to study fiction, only to be told that his writing wasn't very good. Um, uh, despite winning the campus's creative writing contest, uh, when he pointed this out to his writing professor, who was on the MA board, he was told that it didn't matter. Um, um, his writing still wasn't very good. Uh, he has since proved them all wrong uh, by publishing his debut novel, Deviant Ways, in 2000, followed by six further novels, including the excellent uh, Edgar-nominated Remembering Sarah and his latest, The Killing House. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our panel for this evening. Um, I'm going to start with uh, Gillian, if you don't mind. Gillian, sorry, Gillian, there he goes. I kept saying it all day, Gillian, Gillian, don't say Gillian. And inevitably, it's, it's like swearing in church, it just happens. <laughs> um, um, you, you've written three novels. Um, the first of them, you described with a wonderful word, moist. So sharp objects was, had a moist tone. What do you mean by a moist tone? I kind of wanted it to have this very lush, kind of gothic feel to it. Um, and... And, and to, to be very, you know, full of senses and, and kind of thick, thick, moist. That sounds awful. <laughs> that does not sound like a book I actually want to read. But um, that was kind of what that I was... the front. That moist. <laughs> thick and moist. Atmosphere. That's probably a better that's way That's a better word. It. Do you write? I do. <laughs> very good. Well done, you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I wrote it while I was still working for Entertainment Weekly magazine, which is a pop culture magazine in the States, and it's very... Um, very conversational and very light and, and kind of, uh, you know, funny. And, and I think that was my antidote to it was, you know, when you have to go home and write more, mm. I almost went the opposite. I was, so I was like, more dark, more gothic. And you can tell from the book, 
I was trying to avoid it because I do not think there's a single pop culture reference in the whole thing. These people could be living in the 1800s for that. They've never, apparently have never heard a song or, or watched TV or anything. And I, so I think that uh, tonally that was kind of important for me to disengage a little uh, bit. The, the next novel, Dark Places, was uh, echoes a ritual sexual abuse. And when I read Gongo, what struck me was how radically different it was from mm -hmm. the two novels that preceded it. Um, and it, in common with Megan, it, it seemed to me that one could have taken the murder element out of it, and it really wouldn't have made a great deal of difference to the mm. nature of the book. And I'm wondering when you wrote it, was that a conscious decision? Did you feel that you were moving away from a particular type of crime writing, or even did you even consider it as a crime novel? Because it's, it's a borderline right. book, I right. would have thought. Yeah, it's, it, it is a, it's sort of hard to you know, call it necessarily a, you know, it's not a whodunit necessarily or a mystery, but I wasn't consciously trying to do it. I just knew the kind of ideas that I wanted to play with, and I knew I definitely wanted to talk about relationships and marriage. My first two books uh, starred narrators who were the opposite of engaged in anything. They couldn't really have any sort of relationships and I wanted to go the other way and have the, the, the fear inside the house and mm -hmm. you know, in, within this sort of relationship and what's really going on with it between this husband and wife. And I, so I knew that was what interested me and then I almost had to kind of, and Megan, I'd be interested if you had the same thing, I'm, I almost had to kind of then construct the mystery around it to, because I did want that, obviously, it has that element a woman goes missing, but mm. uh, I, I worked from there. It's a particularly poisonous marriage. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I don't want to delve too deeply into your, into your personal <laughs> life, uh, but it did struck me, it was, it was a very uh, bleak look at married life. Yeah, my husband's out there somewhere in the dark, so <laughs> <laughs> I can't say too much. But, but just, uh, just wink at us, we'll know, you know. We'll have a counselor on hand. I wanted it to people to be able to re relate to the emotion of it, at least, the, that give and take of any long-term relationship and the little power struggles that anyone has and, and all that. And it's, you know, it's magnified in this sort of very poisonous bloom uh, from there, um, so but I wanted it to feel real. I wanted people to at least be able to identify. But then it certainly it, it goes from there. Well, it's interesting that you did point that out, Megan, because <coughs> with Dare Me, um, again, it seems to be a novel that, in t to some degree, the crime nature of it is, is largely incidental. And when it's in the, no the way that it's being jacketed here, it really is not being presented particularly as a crime novel. Again, was that a was that a co very conscious decision, do you think, or did it arise in the, co in the course of the writing? I guess it's always, uh, I'm, I'm most interested, because I don't have a very logical mind, so I've never been good at constructing puzzles or clues or any of the, the, welcome those to elements. Writing. Well <laughs> exactly. Done, <yeah. laughs> the right field. So I always, what, I, what it, it always appealed to me about crime novels is what people will do when pushed into a corner, what reg basically regular people, if, if we can, any of us can call ourselves regular people, will do if pushed into a particular situation. So always, and I, I think, Gilly, when I read yours, I, I felt the, the same thing. It's, it's really our, our regular, regular life, um, but everything gets heightened, and all of a sudden you don't really know what you'll do until your back is against the wall. And that's always intrigued me about, I, I know we both have a, a big love of true crime, and I think that's one of the, the fascinations with true crime, as you see, you know, he, he looked like everybody else, you know. <laughs> he was just a quiet guy, and then something happens, and something um, snaps, and the whole spine of your life just sort of disintegrates. And I guess that's always been the appeal for me. For those who haven't read it, Dear Me is, is about a, a cheerleading, 
Hawking's group, um, and a, a pair of them are quite close friends, and, and suspicions that jealousy arises over a new female coach. It's kind of steeped in hormones, and there's a lovely quote in it. There's something dangerous about the boredom of teenage girls. Yeah. Mm. What did you yeah. mean by that? Yes, I, I, it's one of those lines that just came out when I wrote it, and I, it could hardly be truer, I think. Uh, um, I'm, this book and my last book have both been about teenage girls, and it's sort of, I think it's Freud who said that we're all kind of arrested at a certain age, and for me, it's teenage girldom, and I can so remember that time when everything is so intense, everything matters so much. Your friend is mad at you at school, your life is falling apart, a boy looks at you the wrong way, and everything is ruined, and you will do anything to, to save yourself. And for teenagers today, and, and, and I'm sure it's true here too, but in the States, um, in my day, you could pass a note and ruin someone's reputation by the end of the school day. Now they can send a text message, and your reputation for four years of high school is, is, is completely destroyed, and there's no recovery from it. So that kind of, um, it's kind of hot house, and mm. I guess that's what interested me about it and was sort of the, the push for the book. It's a, it's a very particular milieu that you're writing about. Um, I, I, my experience of cheerleading is, is very, very slim, and when I was talking to Denise, <laughs> Denise, I'd like, like to know more. Um, I'm, I'm happy to do the research. Um, but uh, when I was talking to Denise Nina, last night, she said, you know, she said, we have, a, we have cheerleaders in Glasgow, which I was quite <laughs> astonished by. And they don't sound like American cheerleaders, frankly. It's, it's cold up there to begin with. They, <laughs> they, they, they sounded, frankly, kind of nasty. But one of the, uh, one of the things that struck me was, was the sheer dreadfulness of the training and what they put their bodies through. Right. How much of that was research and how much of that is, without asking any awkward questions, yeah. are you blooming? Um, was, <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm wondering, was that, were you part of that when you were in high school? Were you? Well, I was definitely not a cheerleader. I was the editor of the school paper kind of student and, um, and was definitely not part of that world and, and don't have an athletic bone in my body. And, and though in my day in the 80s, um, cheerleading was much more about pom-pom waving. It wasn't the acrobatic gymnastic sport it's become, but now the rigors that these girls go through are so intense. It's almost like Olympic training, um, and so the competition is extreme. And doing the research, what fascinated me most is how much these girls love it, and they love putting their bodies through this stuff, and there's a part that's a little nihilistic about it, like every teenager, you know, but there's also a part that they just reminded me of soldiers, and they want to compare their wounds, and and I just thought that was fascinating because it's the thing we don't ever think about teenage girls that they would have these aggressive impulses and they would have this sort of um, ballsy way about them, and so mm. I think that was the appeal for me because I was not that way. <laughs> you, Chris, you uh, you've you've taken a very particular locale that you've tended to write about, which is that area that you grew up in around Massachusetts. You seem to be very fascinated, certainly in the earlier books, with Mm. And, and with Remembering Sarah in particular, which I think is just an incredible novel, oh, um, about, about that environment. And when you wrote one of the essays for Books to Die For, it was very much focused on that environment. Um, you've gone through a kind of series of changes in your, in your work, because <coughs> you've been writing for quite some time. You, you went from um, the, the Deviant Ways, right. which featured Malcolm Fletcher as, right. a, as a peripheral character. You then moved on to kind of Remembering Sarah, which was a standalone novel. Right. Uh, then started the Derby books, and, and have brought Malcolm Fletcher kind of full circle again. It's quite interesting to see somebody, when you write your first novel, not really seeing this character as a center stage character and then gradually moving them forward. What, what changed over the course of your writing, do you think, to make that happen? Uh, he was, Malcolm Fletcher is this character who is a former profiler who ends up being wanted by the FBI. And when, when the book opens, he's actually number one because Bin Laden's dead and 
Boston's Whitey Bulger got captured. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know, uh, the response I got was always, yeah, I really like the story, but I want to know more about him. Uh, and I just thought it was time to, to, to kind of explore, explore it. I think he's an interesting character, otherwise I wouldn't have writ written about him. Uh, and I don't know, I just... Was there a big transition? Because the previous books had had put a female character center stage. Yeah. Which you hadn't really done before, and, and you I thought you handled it very well. Was there, was it nice to go back to writing about a man? Or no, did you no, find no. it I difficult to put yourself women. into that? Yeah, it's because it's one of those challenges that men face. And, and men often, I think, get, male writers often get criticized for not capturing women terribly well, but equally I think males read female writers writing about men and think we're not really like that. Yeah. Was there, did you find a difficulty in writing those Derby books, or was it? No, uh, surprisingly, the Darby books actually come a little bit easier because, I don't know, I just, uh, I'm, I think it's more fascinating for me to write about women, you know. You want to, as a male, you want to understand women. Uh, I remember when I wrote the, the first Darby book, my wife was, uh, I gave it to her to read it, and, you know, there was this laughter coming from the other room. And I go, oh, she's come, come across one of my brilliant comedic <laughs> scenes. My bon mot. Yes. <laughs> You know, I go in and I said, oh, what are you laughing at? Was it the scene with blah, blah, blah? And she's laughing and she goes, you have no idea. <laughs> you know nothing about women. Nothing at all. And, uh, you know, so it was, an, I don't know, it was just an education process. I'm just fascinated by the dynamics. But I'm also fascinated equally that I think uh, a woman, especially in a very boys club cop world, can hold her own just as intellectually as a man can, and also, I think, physically. Especially some of the girls I grew up with in uh, South Boston could <laughs> no doubt kick my ass. So it's, I was always fascinated by that dynamic. There's something I did want to ask you about in the book. Uh, there is uh, 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 the notion of, of putting people's ashes into unusual objects. Um, oh, that. Yeah, yeah I, I, and that. I had read that you can, if, if you were cremated and you decided that you're, if you wanted your loved one near you, you could have them made into a kind of little diamond that you wore around yeah, your neck, you which seems to be bizarre. In the book, there is a company called Sacred Ash. Yes. Is that based on a real company? As a matter of fact, it is. Would you, I just think it was one of the most, it was in those things before when I read the book, I remember thinking, what the hell is wrong with Americans? <laughs> you know, really, I, you know, you can't spell and then you do stuff like this. Could you, could you, could you explain to, 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 the, to the normal people out there what Sacred Ash is or what the company it's based on might be? There is a company that started, it made the news this year in the States, where it's called Holy Smoke. It's based in Alabama. I know, shocking. And what they do, they advertise a low-cost solution to internment versus internment where you can take your loved one's ashes. And Gillian's looking at me, this sounds really creepy. Uh, tell me more. <laughs> tell me, I, I take notes. Um, and you can, you can take your loved one's ashes and you can put them in the caliber of your choice. Hunting rifles, <laughs> 9-millimeter ammo, practice pistols, and it's... I was just fascinated by who, uh, even if I was a gun enthusiast, which I'm not, who would do this? Yeah. Is it, a, is it a token of love, do you think, to put your loved one into a bullet and fire them at somebody? <laughs> I, I just, do. It wouldn't have struck me as the first thing I wanted to do. You know, it's Thanksgiving, yeah. Uncle Bobby's died, yeah. you want to remember him, you go out and shoot the turkey, so, you know. Yeah. It's a good way to keep Uncle Bobby close. But then you eat the turkey? Then you eat the turkey. <laughs> that's and that's uh, that was one of the testimonials on there, and I 
Only in America, I guess. What the hell is wrong with you people? Um, <laughs> God almighty, I knew I was getting the ropey panel. Um, <laughs> Ryan, please be the, the voice of common smart, sense. Um, you, spent, you spent time in the army. Yeah. Um, and then spent a period of time screenwriting. Uh, or, uh, uh, and that doesn't sound like it was a very happy time for you. When I was researching you, you said, I came to hate writing. Why is that? <laughs> Um, mostly because of the business. Like, I like writing screenplays. Um, I don't find it that difficult, but um, I don't like producers that much. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't like, um, I don't like getting notes based on just some guy's whim instead of based on the story and how to make it better or how to make the characters more believable. It's, it's instead based on, like, a structural process, and it won't necessarily make make anything better. It just makes it what they want. And I don't really care what they want. So, oh, so was it <laughs> I take it it was a frustrating <laughs> time then. Uh, yeah. I mean, did, did anything come to fruition or was it a long series of... Um, you know, I, I sold scripts and I got to go on vacations and stuff, but nothing got made. And then I worked in uh, TV for a while. I ended up working in reality TV and... Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, it Wait, was terrible. <laughs> yeah. It reality was TV scripted? <laughs> I, didn't I ended up working in reality TV for a while, and I was terrible at it, so I got fired, and then I wrote a book. <laughs> so it was kind of an escape from, yeah. from that period. You, you said you've written about your admiration for Jim Thompson, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. You said that sitting at his typewriter, he was fearless. He would not hold back. He, he led a dreadful life, yeah, which is one of the reasons why I think he wasn't able to do it. Um, but I wonder how that influenced your own work, because it seemed to me when I was reading The Dispatcher that there were elements of Lou Ford and Colin Hunt. There were elements, yeah. something of, of, of Doc and Carl McCoy and the getaway in the relationship between Henry and his wife. The Dispatcher, incidentally, is about a, a police dispatcher who receives a call from his daughter who has been missing for a long time, and this precipitates a, a search for the culprits, which goes on. It, it seemed to be it, it very influenced by that kind of propulsive writing that Thompson produced, was, that, was, that, was he a conscious influence on it, do you think? Yeah, I think the getaway specifically with the dispatcher. Um, I just wanted to write something where I didn't pull any punches at all, just went all the way with my foot, you know, all the way to the floor. Um, and because sometimes if you're writing, you kind of, or I do at least, um, tend to like think, well, what are people going to think of this? And with that book, I just, I didn't, I, I pushed that thought aside and just wanted to write what I wrote and um, go all the way with it. So, was that was was did you feel that was a conscious progression from the books that have gone before it? They've all certainly been interested in in violence and the nature of violence. Yeah. Um, to what extent did to what extent did your own experience in in army life? I know whether you saw combat or to degree that to what degree did that affect the way you looked at the books that you wrote? Because you write quite a lot in non-fiction about violence. You seem very interested in the way that it's portrayed on the page. Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm fascinated by violence. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by how it like, affects individuals in the moment. I'm not particularly interested in, um, in war as a subject because that's where violence is expected. I'm more interested in where violence is not expected and it happens anyway. Um, so to me, that's the fascinating thing. How does, you know, how does like crossing the street and your daughter gets hit by a bus affect somebody when it just comes out of the blue? Um, to me, that's fascinating. To me, that's the interesting part of violence. Like I don't, war is just, it's its own thing. If you're gonna write about a war zone, if you're gonna write about a conflict, 
that's what the book is about. It's not really, it's not necessarily about the people, it's about what's happening. And I'm more interested in the internal conflict and uh, all of that. Related to that, you've said that you like shining a light on ugliness. What do you mean by that exactly? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. Did that seem like a good idea at the time? <laughs> it's curious that you, you come out of the, the, that fascination with, with Jim Thompson because, Megan, your, your background is, is, your entry into fiction is slightly peculiar because, not well, peculiar is probably the wrong word. Um, I'll have to read this because I, I, I'll have to, I wouldn't remember, wouldn't be able to say the title otherwise. You, you wrote your graduate thesis became a published non-fiction book and it's The Street Was Mine, White Masculinity and Hard-Boiled Fiction in Film Noir. Catchy uh, title, right? It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a big seller. <laughs> um, to what extent did... Obviously, when I, I've read about you, and you clearly come from a background of being fascinated by film. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Public Enemy, yeah. Gilda, or, or titles Double Indemnity, titles mm -hmm. that come up again and again with you. To what extent has film influenced the way that you write? Because you, yeah. you must have come out of that environment. Yes, entirely. I mean, that... That was really what, what raised me. I just was a movie lover from a, a young, young age. And, and for some reason, where I grew up in, in Michigan, the, the thing that was always on Saturday morning would be gangster movies. And, and I just, I just love, I thought they were contemporary, I think, actually. And I wanted to marry Jimmy Cagney and have him put wish a grapefruit in my face, I guess. <laughs> um, I just thought it was so, um, I, you know, as a kid, I think I was just intoxicated by, by the, the glamour of it. But I I think then later when I moved on to a fascination with film noir, it was it just felt like all the the emotions of life uh, blown up, and it just um, it it seemed so much more interesting than my everyday life of you know going to the 7-Eleven and buying a Slurpee, you know, um, it was just a suburban American life, and I just um, that was the that when I started writing, I wanted to write my way into those movies. That was really my my purpose. Gillian, do, do you, what, what, what was your entry into the genre? What brought you into it? Was it reading or...? I was a lot like Megan. I was really interested in film early on. My dad's a film professor, and that's what we did. His father-daughter dates, seen incredibly inappropriate movies <laughs> for a child. Yeah. Didn't you see, when you were really young, Alien? Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I was like seven years old, and partly, <laughs> partly I think my dad was like, I don't want to hire a babysitter, and partly he was, you know, like, this is a very important film. It's, I mean, we sat down and had a discussion about it and went to see it. I mean, saw Ridley, I mean, Ridley Scott films. I saw, I saw Bonnie and Clyde at a very young age because he was teaching it in class and brought me along with it. And, you know, you, you should see this. <laughs> 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 you know, no, Daddy, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, but I, you know, I loved it. I, I was always one of those kids who I liked the dark stuff. You know, I liked the, I didn't like the Brothers Grimm with the princesses, I like the Brothers Grimm where children ended up baked in a pot. <laughs> like that was my thing. And, and, and so yeah, I was always, I, I always kind of liked stories and I liked writing. I, I grew up in a house with a lot of books also. And, and um, my very first entry into the genre, I think was in third grade, I wrote a short story based on my love of Little House on the Prairie. Mm. And it was called very grandly, To the Outhouse. <laughs> <laughs> It was about a little pioneer girl who, in the middle of the night, tries to go to the outhouse and gets there and then is uh, surrounded by wolves. 
and it's a, you know it's told from her point of view and will she be able to get back to the house and is she gonna you know she's girding up her you know courage and she's gonna and she makes a bolt for it and then is killed and eaten alive by wolves <laughs> like that was how I was like that's a completely like an American Girl story <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> like, exactly. of course this is how it should end so you know so I mean early on I, I always kind of liked that those I like I liked endings that weren't happy uh, for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah it, well, it, it clearly comes through. Not <laughs> girl, yeah. Where I put it down, I went, oh. Um, <laughs> what about you? Because obviously, you, your background is in film too. It was mm -hmm. something that seemed to go with each of you. To what extent did that influence the way that you wrote? Do you think that you've brought, because obviously, while you said screenwriting was quite a negative experience mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, there must have been things that you, could, you learned from it that you could bring to the books that you wrote. Well, I like writing visually, and I like conveying character through their actions as opposed to um, internal dialogue or internal monologues. So I know, it brought, I, I know I brought that with it. Um, but other than that, I don't think it really influenced all that much. I just, I just write what I'm interested in. And what, but what was your entry into crime fiction, do you think? What made you choose that particular avenue? Were there writers? Was there a particular moment where you thought, this is a kind of writing that appeals to me? Um, I think it was more that it was, it was uh, I could I could write about subjects that interested me, um, like violence and and love and you know how they're interconnected. Because um, like my first short story, I wrote when I was I don't know 11, and it was just a purely pornographic tale because that's what I was interested in at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then. <laughs> And then as I became interested in, you know, different things, I just found, uh, you know, a mode to convey what I was interested in and to kind of find out what I thought about those subjects. So it just, crime fiction just seemed a natural, a natural way to write about sure. those things. Chris, was that, we share a kind of intro, a, a, a fascination with Stephen King, I think we read him, yeah. we both read him quite early. I'm just wondering what was the thing that, because you began with technical writing, I think you thought you were going to be a computer programmer or oh, yeah. something very different, and you gradually <laughs> seemed to drift towards creative writing, and I'm wondering what was the impetus for that? Well, it's, I, I mean, I think my parents look, I mean, I know they look at me and go, I'm, I don't know where he came from, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm adopted. But they, my father was an engineer and my mother was an accountant and I just, you know, with Stephen King, we had something back home called Creature Double Feature and they showed the old black and white horror movies and they were on, you know, Saturdays and Sundays and Saturday night was my parents' date night and the cool grandmother, not the Irish Catholic grandmother, but the one who was actually fun, allowed me, <laughs> allowed me to stay up on Saturday nights and watch, you know, the slightly bloodier ones, you know, were in, that were in color. And I remember seeing the trailer for The Shining in the part where the doors open and the blood comes out. And I literally sat up and I go, I have to see this. And of course it was rated R and my mother's, you know, there's no way in hell you're ever going to see that movie. But they were really liberal with reading. And I got to read... The Shining, after there was a big fight with my father and the librarian, you can't do that. <laughs> what kind of parent are you? I'm going to call social service. You know, this whole thing. <laughs> and when I finally got it home, it was that magical thing. I'm, I, I have to read this, and I read it through the night. But for crime writing, it was Silence of the Lambs was uh, a big, big influence, and, and still is. It's just that perfectly 
written throughout. There's not one flaw in it. You shared an agent with Harris for a time, didn't you? Well, an editor. I worked editor. with, uh, yeah, I worked with the editor who did Silence of the Lambs, and, you know, I would sit down and talk to him and ask him all these questions about Thomas Harris. And he's like, well, why don't we talk about your book? No, 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 <laughs> tell me more about Thomas Harris. What was it like? What was it like? <laughs> um, yeah, so I did that for a while. But I've always been fascinated by that, that crime and, you know, the suspense, the feeling like, like Gillian, I grew up on these totally inappropriate movies. Uh, I saw, I think, I, I don't know how old I was, maybe 10 or 11, we, Cable had just come to the States, and I heard about The Exorcist. You know, you got to see The Exorcist, and I don't know, I, it was on at 3.30 in the morning, I snuck downstairs, and the part where Linda Blair's head spins around, I screamed <laughs> at the top of my head. I was ground, I, that was the longest I had ever been grounded, it was two weeks. My I thought my mother was going to kill me. <laughs> I'm wondering, does that... That culture that you're exposed to, what is the difference between your voice and a British or European voice? Do, do you think when you read British European fiction, do you think there's something distinctive about the way that you write? Do you see differences in the way that Americans write or approach these subjects? Mm -hmm. Do you have a greater landscape than they have? It seems to me sometimes that your, your range of references is so much wider. I come from Ireland where we were a very circumscribed society. It was very difficult to see any of those movies. A lot of them were banned. And so our oh, really? range of, or, or were very, or heavily censored and were very difficult to watch. So our range mm -hmm. of, of cultural references were, was much smaller. And I wonder, does that contribute to the way that you write? Do you feel that you have so much more to draw on? Do you feel that you're working against a big landscape? Or is that just something that we perceive from outside as Europeans? I'm looking at you, Megan, because yeah, you, what? you, you might have an answer. I, guess it, I, I, I was thinking about this recently because I uh, was been talking about you know the sort of difference between the two cultures with why there's cheerleading in the states and not here, and and I was thinking about the crime tradition and how in America at least, and you have to react to it if you're writing in that tradition one way or another, it's so influenced by the idea of the, the lone man who's really the outlaw or the, the pioneer or the sheriff, but there's always like one guy out there protecting us from savagery. And that's, you know, that still exists in crime fiction. There's, that's still, probably American crime fiction, that's still probably 50 to 75% of books are either a sort of battered PI or, or a cop who's been around or who's fighting against the system and is sort of the one man. There is an individualist tradition that I think is distinctly American that you, you kind of have to reckon with either by participating in it or rejecting it or usually a little of both. Mm -hmm. That crops up in The Dispatcher to a degree yeah. in the way that Colin reacts. For those who haven't read it, maybe just explain what, what he does in the book. Well, uh, he's a police dispatcher and um, at the beginning of the book he gets a 911 call um, and it's from his daughter who's been missing for seven years and was presumed dead and was declared dead. And so once he finds out she's alive, um, he goes to the point where she, he goes to the place where uh, she called from and she's been, she's been snatched up again. She was kidnapped. And so he goes on a hunt. Uh, he goes on a hunt to get her back. And the whole book is about that hunt and kind of um, the moral lines he's willing to cross in order to get her back. He does, because he moves, even as a lawman, he moves beyond the law. He moves beyond the law, and I think anything any reasonable person would do, because I think, you know, love makes people unreasonable. But it, it, in the book, it seems to me, sometimes you, 
you're almost testing the reader to see, how, is, is this too far? Because it, it, there isn't just one act. There, it seems to me there's an accumulation of small things that he does. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I, didn't, I don't think that was a test, or at least a conscious test to the reader so much as um, trying to convey his, his own progression, his personal progression into that kind of violence um, where he almost becomes... Um, I mean, he's he's not that different from the villain by the end of the book. Um, he's not any, he's not a better person than mm. him. Um, I think the reader might identify with him a little bit more because they understand his motives more. But they're pretty much the same character doing the same crappy things. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you've you've produced four books in in four years, yeah. uh, Megan. You were kind of on a book every second year, but you've now produced two books in a row. Chris, you're, you're producing two series virtually simultaneously. Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm starting. I and and Gillian, you've done a book, you, you've taken three books in, in five years. I mean, what I'm wondering is, is there an increasing pressure on genre writers to produce more? Do you feel under particular pressure, or has that ever been raised with you? I, I've taken longer at each book than the previous one, so I thought you were about to take me to task. Killian, <laughs> <laughs> where's your book? Yeah. It's like uh, producing your homework, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, gulp. Um, for me, and I can only speak for me, and, and I also know that I'm I'm a lucky person. Um, they have. For me, no. Um, they have been very. They they just know I'm not a fast. I'm just not a fast writer. I'm. I'm. It takes a while to for those gears to get going. And I do a lot of. I I feel like I write two books for about every book I end up with. I, I I'm a big, a big overwriter and a big rewriter, and and it it just takes me longer. So they have been very kind about, um, especially with Gone Girl, because it was three years between mm -hmm. Dark Places and Gone Girl, and. Right toward the end, <laughs> it was like, just give it to us. <laughs> but, but for the most, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty lucky, and 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 I think that's just because I've made it very clear up front that I I, I am not capable of of doing it uh, too right. quickly. Yeah, for me. And Megan, in terms of the, are you consciously trying to work faster? I, I'm just asking because as a writer, yeah. I sometimes feel that we. There comes a point when you feel the reaper at your neck a little bit and you think, <laughs> I have all of these ideas and I want to get them down. Right, yeah, and I think for me it's, um, it's I have nothing else to do. I don't know, I feel like, <laughs> I don't know what I would fill my, my day with. I, it's, it's a compulsion with me, so, uh, so I've, I've, you know, I take it, take it, I have another one, take it, you know. Um, I just, once I got started, um, as I started writing fiction late, um, Compared to doing other kinds of writing, um, I just couldn't couldn't stop. So so you know, as long as they'll take them, I'll keep. Pushing. So it's coming more from you than from yeah, the outside. Yeah, it's a really And Chris, in, in terms of your writing, has it been difficult? You're becoming quite prolific. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> so it was good. I just oh, thought you're becoming right, quite right. prolific. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't. I mean, th there, there's a balance. I mean, the way I feel is, you know, this is my job. I get up and do it every day you know, morning, afternoon, and whatever, but, you know, as a writer, you do come across these stumbling blocks, and, you know, you go down a road, and it, something's not working, you can't figure it out, uh, but I also sympathize with, you know, the business end of it, because, you know, it's, the market is so, it's not, it's, it's changing, and, you know, you want to make your publisher's job as easy as possible, so what I found for me the best thing to do is to write a really rough first draft, 
and pass it in and let them completely tear it apart, whether it be, you know, change this or, yeah, can you just, you know, page one, start it way, way up at the top at the first sentence and, you know, redo that. Um, but I find that doing that, I got all my notes and then I can sit down and revise because I'm all like you, uh, Jillian, I'll keep revising and tinkering, and at some point they're like, J just give it to us. It's okay. Let's take a look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, just want to look. That's all we're just I think that's, that's quite unusual, too, because I think most of us are probably so protective of the image that we have that we try to present stuff to our editors that, that is as close to like giving perfect homework to the teacher. So in your sense... I, you I used to be like right, that. Right, okay. And my, my editor and my, our agent said, no, 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 just write it down. And I, I have found that by doing that and getting it down, it's done. And you even you can move stuff around. At least you have something to work mm. with, even if it's just a small thing. At least it's done. I think that's probably very good advice. I think a lot of would-be writers, I remember when I was writing my first book, spending six months trying to get the prologue right, yeah, thinking I, that yeah, you I can't move on until everything is perfect. Right. I, I, and I, st I still struggle with that, because you, know, you do. You want to put out a real quality story. And... It's, uh, sometimes it's hard to do. I mean, I think there's this perception of writers is that, you know, and I know my, my mother has this perception. She, you know, when are you going to get a job? All you do is type. <laughs> and I go, I, I actually do more than just typing. That's a part <laughs> of it. But, you know, you, you sit down, it's like, okay, it's noon, I'm done, and off I go to drink or do, I mean, do whatever a writer's <laughs> supposed to do. And are you a, a rewriter, Ryan, or... or did you learn particular things from screenwriting that were in any way helpful to the way that you write? Um, if I did anything, I learned while screenwriting, probably. But I just, uh, I spent about eight months a year hating myself for not working. And then, <laughs> 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 and then the deadline's four months away, and I, and I think, shit, I better sit down and work on this. And I bang it out really quickly because I've been thinking about it for most of that year. And then and then I have a good first draft, and I do one more quick rewrite, and I turn it in. And usually that works really well. Right now I've got about 40 pages of a book that was due two months ago. Um, <laughs> sorry, Wayne. So <laughs> but usually it works out. And so I, like, I kind of like the pressure of the deadline. Like it, it gets me sitting down and actually working, and I can do you know 40 pages in a day, and I'm exhausted. But it's nice to get it done, and it, then it just flows. Wow. Wow. And it just flows. That's yeah. But that's about 12,000 words a day, I think, yeah. a little bit over for those who are wondering. <laughs> so I hope you all feel suitably sluggardly now, okay? Because uh, I know I certainly do. Um, yeah, thanks for that, big guy. Uh, yeah, go, go bother somebody else. Um, and Megan, in, what in terms of just the, write, the writing process, because I think people are quite curious about that. How, how are the books constructed? How do you go about um, it? I usually, I kind of... I guess it's from all the movie watching as a kid. I kind of do a three-act like movie plot structure in my yeah, head, and too. and I know what the three acts are. Lots of stuff shifts in between, but I kind of have to know that. Um, so I I sort of move it around that, and then things always surprise me. Always, I, someone told me this terrifying thing recently. Another writer who said, "Do you realize if you if you don't write today, your book is going to be different than if you did?" Like something. <laughs> and I, like, no one wants to hear that. But if I wrote that day, a thought would come to me that might solve yeah. that problem. And you know, and so I, I try to sort of keep in the rhythm of it and not lose it too much because it feels like these sort of dangling threads. It's probably similar to what what you're talking about, Ryan. Except you're doing a lot of it. You're sort of building it in yeah. your head, the scaffolding, so that when you actually write, you already have have created it essentially. Are you a planner, Gillian? I uh, I, w I wish I were more of one. I. <laughs> 
I know what I'm starting with, but I rarely know. I just don't usually know how it's going to put. Excuse me, how it's going to end. Um, and I, I. The only way I know how to write is to kind of figure it out as I go along. I, I, I tried plotting <laughs> before, and it didn't work out very well for me. It, cha it changed enormously anyway. And so I really do. I, I, I write tons, and you know, I wish I wish it were like a DVD where you could put your deleted scenes <laughs> on it, because you know, I've. I've, I've several several uh, books for every book that ends up out there is like I wish there was something to do with this <laughs> this stuff but I do a lot of writing and, and rewriting and just kind of seeing where it takes me and 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 then yeah there for me that that relief is actually getting that framework down and like yeah. getting that first draft down and it's such a relief I don't know why it takes me so long to do it because every time I finally do it it's like why didn't I you know finish this a, a year ago instead of agonizing over this one scene and because that's when it gets more fun is that rewrite stage for yeah me. yeah that's when you start like i'm surprised you, you say that though because gone girl is so meticulous like interlocking these pieces it's <laughs> it so killed me, no, it killed me. <laughs> i mean it just <laughs> Did seems not come naturally <laughs> even with you know the two and not, this won't spoil the two narrations you know it's so it seems so you must you build that afterward that you sort of put the pieces a lot together. of that i do and it took me so long to write that <laughs> The characters were aging too, too quickly. You know, <laughs> they started out at you know 35 or something. And by the end, I was like doing the math. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to change their birthdays. It's taken me so long to write so that they actually stay the correct age because this was supposed to come out in 2010 or what? You know. Do so, you have to yeah. work your way backwards from because of the way it's it's structured with the ending that you had a. I did. I had to go back and back, okay. you know you start pulling that thread and yeah. as it as you all you know anything that's woven throughout you know you pull one thread and it's like, oh boy, what have I done now? Uh-oh, look yeah. out. I'm going to open it to the floor because we only have about, uh, we have about uh, 12 or 13 minutes left. So maybe you can bring the house lights up a little bit, please. What a motley crew. Bring them back down again, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, does anybody have a question? Yes, gentleman in the corner. Ball rolling. Hi, this is a question for Gillian. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were a full-time journalist uh, and then you went home and kind of your natural instinct wasn't to flip open the laptop and start mm. writing in your spare time. How did you break through that kind of natural instinct of kind of, I don't know, sitting on the sofa watching TV and relaxing <laughs> or whatever? I think part of it was helpful that I had been a working journalist uh, for many years and at a weekly a weekly magazine that was sort of chronically very tightly staffed. So you were you were working every day and writing every day. And I think for me, I had tried writing before. I had been a professional journalist and never been able to finish anything. And for me, I feel like maybe that's that training of you know, de-glamorizing the idea of writing and, and the, the mystery behind it and really knowing that it sometimes it really is just sitting down at the computer and and making you know figuring out and making it work uh, was really helpful to me and and it, you know it, it was it, it was it it was a sign that the book was working for me that I wanted to do it you know and until then I I hadn't really and I I really got excited about the story I was writing and and that was a a good a good faith sign for me of like okay maybe this will work because I actually have been writing for eight to ten hours already and I'm gonna come home. And I'm, or I'm going to spend my vacation or whatever it is, and I'm kind of psyched about it still. So, and also wine helps. <laughs> 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 you, 
kind of nodding and understanding there, Ryan. Was there a moment as well for you, having had gone through quite a frustrating experience in another area where you, you hit maybe with acts of violence and thought, actually, was there a moment where you thought, this is, th I can do this? It just felt kind of like a relief after like working in really bad TV and working on scripts that never got made. And I think if, if you write, you want somebody to actually see it and read it and kind of know what you're talking about instead of sitting on a producer's shelf. And then there's also the whole thing with a novel, you have a much larger canvas than you do with a screenplay. So it kind of felt like the world opening up and I could do all this stuff that I hadn't done for like eight years because I started writing novels when I was like 16. I, I, and I wrote like three or four really, really bad books in my teens. <laughs> And so, and then I kind of like pushed that aside and, you know, was writing the scripts um, and getting paid and all of that. And that was nice, but I just stopped caring about that and wanted to do what I loved again. So, yeah, it felt, it felt great. Have you looked at those books since? Oh, Christ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that, it, it, it's so painful to do that. I, you know, I looked at one of my Foreman manuscripts and I read too long. Ooh, okay, that's going back in the drawer. Put it away, put it away. Don't look at it again. I remember I used, to write, I used to write bad poetry, and when I published my first book, I burnt it all on the grounds, so just in case my plane went down, and my mother decided, you know, maybe, you know, I, like the guy who wrote uh, John Kennedy too, you know, visions yeah. of my, my mother pestering university professors by saying, the guy's a genius, the child was brilliant, he could even rhyme. Um, does anybody, another question, please. Uh, we have a, we, we already picked somebody, that's, yes. First of all, we're not all English. I, oh, okay, and where are you from? Scotland. Oh, really? Okay, you all sound the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's is a general question to ask all of the writers which British, which includes <laughs> Scotland, England, Ireland and Wales, writers... Actually, steady on. Northern Ireland. <laughs> yes, Northern Ireland, yes, your bit. Um, which British writers have you read and which of them have you enjoyed, which may be different? No, I'm just the moderator. Oh, we're, you were <laughs> nodding. I thought you were prepared to give a big answer. Um, do you count? Mm. No, I'm not British. <laughs> well, you are. Uh, 600 years of oppression. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Mark, Bill I, Mark Billingham's books I really, really like. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. That's the only one comes to mind. I mean... I'm getting a lot. I'm getting more in, into that. It's mainly for me. The, on, the only thing I struggle with is figuring it. The, the police structure is so different. Um, you know, it's just learning my way through that. But Mark Billingham made a, a real big difference. And they spell words correctly, unlike you. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, and don't randomly drop you from Instead word of saying, humor. Instead um, of saying trunk, you say boot. <laughs> yeah, we funny English people, British people. Uh, Megan, does, does anybody else want to hop in there? Um, uh, Kate Atkinson is oh, my, yeah. one of my favorites for the Scots. Um, she's been a big influence on me, and, and I, she's one of those ones where I read the book, and I want to, much like Gillian's, I just, like, how did she put this together because of the way the, the plot is so delicately managed? So she's, she's a big inspiration. Yeah. Anybody else would hop in Those there? Two, I got to add Val McDermott. Oh yes, excellent. Yes. Um, and and uh, Mark and Kate both I think are fantastic. Yeah, Kate's awesome. Kate's great. I'll add uh, Roger Ellery. I like a lot, and um, and Simon Lelich. Um, I've read a few of his books, and I've he only has a few books, so I've read all his books, <laughs> and I've I've liked them all. So 
Oh, very good. Well, good recommendations. Agatha Christie. <laughs> Given where we are, her spirit will be raging against you otherwise. Uh, did anybody else? This lady here has a question. Um, this one's for Megan. Um, I was wondering, um, I guess what I really like about your other novels is the fact that um, you really make you, I guess, I like slipping back into the past. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that. And I find it very hard to find a romantic center today. And so that's why I was really surprised by Jeremy. So I'm wondering, are you going to go back again? Which is what I prefer to do. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not influenced by me. But are you uh, looking for other places that you can find that kind of, I guess it's romantic. I mean, that's what mm -hmm. I, I think about the past. So. Yeah, um, I'm sure, so I'm very much influenced by mid-century, uh, mid-last century. Um, and it's always been a, a, an abiding fixation. One of the reasons I, I've departed from it for the last two is because it's such an abiding fixation that that I needed to sort of freshen things up for myself. Um, and and um, so it's, I think it's been good for me to move away, though. I, you know, I, um, you know, I, I, I could write every novel set in 1947 and probably be happy to. Do <laughs> <so. laughs> anybody else? Do you have another question? May I ask uh, just the authors very briefly? What are you What are you planning next? What comes next for each of you, Megan? Um, my next book um, is um, it's called The Fever, and it's about a mysterious illness that um, that um, occurs in a small town and its sort of ramifications. Well, it sounds again like you're moving slightly outside what the regular genre guidelines a little bit. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. It's a, my, most of my books are sort of inspired by true life cases, and this one is too. That's usually the the push. And so, so I found this real life case, and it sort of compelled me. Oh, fantastic, Chris. Uh, I'm finishing up the next Darby McCormick book. The the new Fletcher book comes out next month, and then hopefully by the end of the year, I'll do a draft of the the second Fletcher one. True. Hopefully. Like a one-man industry. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah. It's because you're so tall. There's just more of you to <laughs> go around. Uh, Gillian, you're probably just lying back now thinking, maybe in, a, maybe in a year or two's time I'll start thinking about doing something. Bowling it over. <laughs> um, thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, we should talk. I'm actually starting to work on the screenplay for Gone Girl. Oh, really? Um, as my next project, so I'll, I'll be... Have you done that before? I, I did it for Sharp Objects, um, and as you can see, it was a huge international hit. <laughs> it's still rolling around development, so... Do you find, um, did you find that easier? I mean, I just loved, writing the screen? I loved it. Yeah. Um, I really did. I thought it was really fun tr translating, and, and as someone who just loves movies, like, it was yeah. fun for me to get in there, and I'm like, Megan said, you know, I feel like I kind of almost write in movie scene some ways yeah, like there's certain visual. things I you know I can see so it, it it'll be fun I'm excited about it okay and Ryan well since I love screenplays so much I'll <laughs> also I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm uh, in a couple of weeks I'm supposed to start the script for the dispatcher and then um, the next book I'm calling the algebra of blood and it's kind of about um, it's it's about uh, this adolescent guy who uh, at this kid who um, thinks his father killed his mother, um, and he's never seen him. The guy disappeared, and he kind of rediscovers him and goes to his father, who was a hitman, and tries to get him to teach him how to kill people so that he can kill his father. As <laughs> <laughs> so, one for Christmas then. <laughs> <laughs> After dinner, instead of reading Dickens. <laughs> 
Um, one thing I should say, I, I, I don't do moderating on many panels because sometimes you can end up feeling like uh, the reading is homework. And I, can I say that none of the reading I did for this panel was in any way homework. There were four absolutely fantastic novels and you really won't regret reading any of them. Um, four of the best books that I've read all year, quite simply, by these writers. So it was a real pleasure. Thank you all for coming along. Thank you all for participating. Thank Thanks again. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Well Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.